Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe we are halfway through another week. Where does the time go by? I'm honestly not sure, but one thing I do know is that um, each day is different from the other, and it's up to us as individuals as to how well we choose to go about making the time that is uh, provided to us. And that could involve a variety of things, whether it's work-related or... um, or having downtime when, um, say, um, when done with the work day and and choosing whatever it is that needs to be done. But uh, one thing for sure is that uh, time is a very, very precious commodity. It's not something that should be taken lightly, nor should it be taken for granted. Uh, it's very easy to assume that we have all the time that there is in the world, but in actuality, we don't, but it's up to us as individuals as to how well we choose to make the most of the time that is given to us on this planet. One thing I do know is that um, I can tell you this much, that we are um, at a halfway point in this uh, series of the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels who challenged America's newfound sovereignty by William Hoagland. Um, I think it's great that we've gotten to the halfway point. Because I know some of you are wondering, how will we eventually be able to close out this uh, series? In other words, there has to be a resolution at some point, basically uh, due to the fact that it seems like there's just one constant feud on one side, and the other side's trying to um, establish order. But no matter how hard the other side tries to establish order, nothing that they seem to do is satisfying the party on the other end, being the little guys who feel as though they're being constantly uh, pushed around as if they are like a third wheel to something. It might be fair to say that since the beginning beginning of time that there have been uh, groups or sectors of a society whom feel as though an institution above is out to get them or that an institution above has purposely forgotten them. I'm beginning to wonder if those along the western frontier, there is a population of the western frontier, Pennsylvania, whom whom are educated, whom have fought in both the French and Indian Wars as well as the American Revolution. Yes, uh, while they may seem to be, you know, educated and all that, how they are going about approaching their frustrations and their um, opposition to me is one that is not um, rational. But when you um, have a lot of fear, one tends to not act rational. Not just one, but many uh, within a community whom don't, uh, whom uh, struggle to um, understand why something is being done that is different in their eyes. Acceptance is a, a hard thing for them. So we have to figure out at some point how is resolution going to be made to where there will be a a better sense of order. Well, I wished I could say that I had the answer for that in this podcast segment. But what I do know is um, is that that will eventually be our ultimate objective in finding out how uh, President Washington and his administration can uh, go about um, restoring order, not just restoring it, but maintaining order along the frontiers of uh, western Pennsylvania and past uh, western Pennsylvania, considering 
that the uh, lands uh, to the west of western Pennsylvania, being those territories of the northwest, uh, being Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, how will those territories be uh, accessible for westward uh, migration? So we have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, podcast segment. And when I was on the air last, I know I had mentioned something about a, an organization that um, needed to be uh, mentioned because um, they will have a um, significant influence, the organization rather, I should say, will have a significant influence in terms of uh, making life, in terms of making life difficult for the national, aka federal government. So our first leadoff question is going to be the following. What group consisting of nearly 500 men from the counties of Fayette, Allegheny, Westmoreland, and Washington emerged as a force to reckon with along the forks of the Ohio? How about the Mingo Creek Association? Now, more often than not, when I hear the word Mingo, I tend to think of West Virginia. I do know uh, that there was an Indian tribe known as the Mingos that lived in uh, present-day West Virginia, most notably within, I want to say, the central and uh, southern uh, regions of uh, present-day West Virginia, that uh, southern West Virginia, most notably bordering uh, what we know as uh, Kentucky. So, yes, you have the Mingo Creek Association, and this association is going to be one that is definitely a force to reckon with, not just so much along the forks of the Ohio, but it's going to be an organization that the government is going to have to keep its uh, eyes on in terms of uh, close monitoring. Um, I I do know that the Mingo Creek Association was inspired by Herman Husband's sermons, which advocated the use of extreme force in suppressing institutions above, like the federal government, whom had now taken an approach where they favored looking after the rich or the elite versus the masses being the ordinary uh, everyday people whom were laboring at the expense of a few. In other words, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, these ordinary people being the uh, the masses, uh, the general laborers, they're the ones, you know, that we could say are getting up each day and you know, working a job that's like nine to five daily. They're putting in a lot of sweat and toil, but yet they're, they're not getting anything in back to show for their hard work. In other words, everything that they're doing is going towards this um, institution being that of the federal government, but yet they don't seem to respect the fact that the federal government really isn't out to get them, but the government needs revenue. I mean, if the federal government doesn't have revenue coming in, how can the federal government function? Well, how can any government function, for that matter, even on a state level or local level? So for the people in the western frontiers, they they really need to, um, you know, this is where it's hard to change people's attitudes, uh, change people's minds. Sometimes you can tell someone until they're, until you're blue in the face that they need to stop thinking a certain way. But more often than not, um, there are a lot of people who might be set in their own ways, and it is it could be very well fair to say that people along the uh, western Pennsylvania frontier are very set in their own ways. 
So if they're set in their own ways, then we have to wonder, how can any means of proper resolution be achieved? The Mingo Creek Association met at, Mi at Mingo Creek Church, being nearby Mingo Creek, where the four western counties met. At the church, uh, the association began uh, forming uh, militias. And this is important that the reason why the association began forming militias was basically to um, arm themselves and prepare themselves if in the event the federal government was going to send a barrage of uh, federal troops onto their uh, homeland to put down in the eyes of the government a potential insurrection or um, rebellion that threatened the young republic's national security. It should be interesting uh, to point out here that prior to the United States Constitution's creation, being that of uh, 1787, hard to believe that was 235 years ago. It, that seems like a long time, but in actuality it's really not. But prior to 1787, the year that the United States Constitution was created, members and allies of the Mingo Creek Association had gone as far, believe it or not, they had gone as far as closing roads to towns where debt cases got heard to issuing boycotts on liquor from the East. You know, it's one thing to... Um, hold a case regarding um, a debt-related issue or debt-related issues for that matter, but to go as far as closing the roads and preventing lawyers from making their way into town uh, to take up uh, a debt-related matter, that to me is pretty risky. You know, it's one thing to voice your opposition but if you go as far as assisting with closing the roads to a town to prevent um, law enforcement or let alone lawyers from coming into town to uh, preside or to, um, to discuss uh, debt-related cases with the, with the judge, to me, that's an example of aiding and abetting. In other words, you're aiding, if you're not the lead instigator, you are um, aiding and assisting the head uh, gurus behind um, behind engaging in uh, actions that are um, that are um, unbecoming, and then of course a boycott is um, basically okay. You know, a boycott is basically um, putting a halt to anything um, that per perhaps say at one time you were dependent upon, but now you don't feel the need to to be dependent upon it because um, it's something that perhaps you don't like. Uh, you know, usually when I uh, think of boycotts with regards to history, I, I often think of uh, boycotts that occurred under that infamous uh, non-importation agreement that the 13, that the uh, colonies agreed upon, um, especially in 1774 when the First Continental Congress convened. They agreed to a one-year non-importation agreement with the hopes that Parliament would uh, come to its senses and um, respect why uh, the colonies had, um, had issued uh, multiple grievances via means of um, not just listing the grievances, but eventually what would become the uh, Olive Branch Petition. 
But the non-importation agreement basically put a halt on all British goods uh, coming into the uh, colonies. So in terms of boycotting here, Westerners are putting a halt on on not allowing uh, liquor that was um, produced from uh, the East, say like being Philadelphia, they've pretty, pretty much put a halt to say, hey, we don't want this stuff. You know, boycotts can only go but so far, but one way or another, you know, it's one thing to institute a boycott, but taxes alone will always be there. In other words, you know, you can you can issue all the boycotts you want, but one way or another, the government is going to see to it that the taxes are going to be collected. Did the Mingo Creek Association go as far as instituting itself and becoming a separate court of law? Oh, believe it or not, folks, this uh, Mingo Creek Association um, went as far as uh, instituting itself in becoming a separate court of law. The uh, lead militia commander was uh, a Colonel John Hamilton, and within his district, he ensured that no person brought a complaint in the county court against another person in the same district without first um, seeking uh, mediation. Does anybody know what um, mediation is? I bet many of you have heard mediation, have heard the term mediation, but for some of you who aren't familiar with mediation, it's the following. It's a process where a third party, okay, when I think of a third party, I don't think of him or her as being affiliated with the plaintiff or with the defendant, but it's a process where the third party intervenes in resolving outstanding, or I should say, intervenes in resolving either an outstanding dispute or multiple disputes between two parties, you know, being the plaintiff, the one who's bringing the suit, and the defendant whom is uh, defending themselves against via the suit brought against them. Mingo Creek Association uh, supported the use of mediators regarding debt-related matters and they wanted uh, mediators to be chosen through popular elections. So it's one thing to have a mediator out there, but the mediator needs to um, be chosen at the discretion of the people, because if the people don't have a say over whom is to be the mediator, then how can the people feel... Um, feel good about whom is going to be uh, going about mediating whatever disputes are in existence. You would hope that, okay, that if uh, people are um, voting upon the mediators through popular elections that one way or another, whomever emerges as the winner, they're going to be satisfied with. But we should also be reminded that sometimes no matter whom is elected as an elected official, there's always going to be a sector of society who is not satisfied. Now, uh, did a convention take place during August of 1792? Uh, yes, the convention uh, was held in Pittsburgh. It comprised mostly of radicals whom sought reforms like replacing a whiskey tax with a greater tax on wealth to removing lower-tier government employees from their posts 
involved in uh, collecting tax on whiskey. So these lower tier employees, another term for it is like hirelings. In other words, these are people whom are performing menial tasks. I kind of was under the impression that maybe they were hired to do a little bit of dirty work for those above. But that's not really what hireling is all about. It's just basically adding someone else to the um, employment roster whom is performing lower tier tasks. But at the same time, these um, these individuals whom are um, labeled as hirelings are not um, how you call it. They're they're not um, they're not looked upon with great respect. In other words, anybody who's working for the government at this point in time is not um, really considered a friend to the um, frontiers people. The frontier radicals uh, went about um, establishing committees of correspondence. Now, when I think of committees of correspondence, I always think of the American Revolution. Uh, to me, committees of correspondence during the American Revolution stands out because men from from all the colonies as far north as New Hampshire and down south into Georgia, they uh, would write to one another. Uh, they would um, write to uh, to discuss uh, grievances. They would write to discuss how um, how laws that Parliament had passed were unfair um, for whatever reasons they felt were unfair, uh, especially if it involved uh, not not giving the colonists their fair share of proper consent. So, you, so yes, when I think of um, when I think of uh, what's called committees of correspondence, I do tend to think of uh, the time of the American Revolution. But with regards to committees of correspondence here, these committees went about um, went about proposing uh, reform. Uh, that is, um, re reforming government including a unification of the entire forks of the Ohio. When we say uh, unification for the entire forks of the Ohio, that means, yes, being unified in terms of opposing the federal government's um, measures behind, you know, collecting taxes on whiskey. But when I think of unification here, it would be fair to say that it would all also pertain to militia fighting, set up. In other words, unification means having militia, militiamen band together to take up arms to defend themselves against the government whom they see as being this um, evil entity that is willing to disrupt their livelihoods all in the names of um, all in the names of making them suffer given that they've provided so much but yet only a few are benefiting from the masses of hard labor or hard laborious work. Now, uh, I don't expect you all to know this, um, this guy's name, but you all might be in for a surprise when you learn about his name because, um, because it just so happens to be that uh, there was a captain named William Faulkner. Of course, when I think of William Faulkner, I think of the famous uh, poet from the 20th century, but there was a captain named William Faulkner who was an officer in the United States Army at Fort Fayette. He resided in the town of Washington where he ran a tavern. 
General um, Neville, whom we learned a great deal about from the previous podcast, uh, ran an ad in the Pittsburgh Gazette. Of course, we now know it in today's time as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, but in the, but in its early years, it was known as the Pittsburgh Gazette. General Neville put an ad in the Gazette um, requesting, um, requesting um, service. In other words, requesting um, the means of uh, being able to um, establish an office where uh, the taxes could be collected. Well, Mr. Uh, F- Captain Faulkner took up uh, General Neville's request through the Gazette, and he allowed General Neville to rent a tavern room. You know, even in 18th century um, time, you know, it's easy to think, oh, there must have been a lot of things done secretly where, where the rest of um, the town didn't know about something. Well, we should be reminded that even in 18th century um, standards of living, it would be very hard to um, say that everything was secret. Sure, there may have been no social media, no telephones, uh, no electronic gadgets, but people found ways to learn about um, information that could be considered sensitive, uh, private. So these um, radicals found out pretty quickly about um, about um, the proposal that Captain William Faulkner um, that uh, Captain William Faulkner um, took up in allowing uh, General Neville um, the rights to rent a tavern room at um, Captain Faulkner's tavern. Well, think about this too, folks. You know, these um, frontiers people, you know, they can read, and I'm sure they can write, but what they do read in the Gazette is legit news. It's not fake. So as soon as they uh, read about... um, about a tax office or read about the fact that someone is renting a tavern room but they're doing it for government reasons yeah that's going to really um catch the eyes of uh the radicals so the radicals became so angry once they learned about this to where they rode um to Faulkner's tavern and what do they do folks they vandalized it you know Yes, it's one thing to be upset, but should we be going around and destroying people's property um, just because we're so upset to the point that we feel threatened right away? This is where uh, many of these people, while yes, they may be war veterans, but yet they are taking the law into their own hands, which is not um, which is not a very uh, rational um, making decision or rational decision. So yes, they vandalize uh, Captain Faulkner's tavern, but ironically, the day later, Captain Faulkner published an article in the Gazette stating he would not allow a tax office to be operated within his tavern. Okay, so as a result of this, the, um, the radicals are satisfied they're satisfied, yes, knowing that, okay, Captain Faulkner is no longer going to um, have a tax office operating within his tavern, but this unity is growing along the forks because uh, the radicals along the forks now feel that, okay, Captain Faulkner has, has um, 
admitted his wrongdoing. So because he's admitted his wrongdoing, now we've now we're a step ahead of the federal officials. Well, wouldn't it be fair to say that had the uh, radicals used a little bit more common sense and waited a couple of days? If they'd waited a couple of days, especially after Faulkner's article had been published, given that it was a day after the vandalization took place, that had they waited a little bit longer, they might not have needed to uh, go as far as uh, vandalizing uh, Captain Faulkner's tavern. But here again, this is a good example of how even in 18th century times, there were people or groups of people who did rush to judgment. Of course, we say it all the time in today's um, in today's uh, technological world where people do rush to judgment in terms of not getting their facts straight, but it can be fair to say that these radicals are struggling with the concept of getting their facts straight before uh, taking matters into their own hands. I will say this, that surveys past the mountains have become all the more difficult in regards to collecting the whiskey tax. Revenue inspectors in both North and South Carolina resigned. No tax was collected in Kentucky, and the forks of the Ohio situation made matters worse given the region itself was in the same state where the federal government was stationed. Okay, the forks of the Ohio are in western Pennsylvania, folks. But to the east is America's capital, Philadelphia. So the government is in a bit of a, a bad situation. It's bad enough that uh, federal tax collectors are resigning simply in part because they're being threatened left and right. And, you know, when I think of tax collectors being threatened, I think of uh, what led up to the American Revolutionary War, right before the time when shots were fired around the world. Uh, tax collectors in Massachusetts had been harassed left and right to where their homes had been vandalized and in some instances destroyed to where they flat out resigned in fear of uh, personal safety. So, no, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a tax collector during this time, but but knowing uh, what I know and based upon what I've read, I'm not so sure I would have been able to have fulfilled my job. You know, yes, it's not good to feel intimidated, but at the same time, there's nothing worse than probably being tarred and feathered. And I think it's it would be very fair to say that for many of these tax collectors, they did go above and beyond in the Carolinas and in Kentucky, and we should keep in mind, folks, in 1791, um, uh, two new uh, states are uh, admitted to the Union, being Vermont and Kentucky. Tennessee will eventually join, but in 1791, uh, two new states are admitted to the Union, uh, being uh, Vermont. Um, actually, I take it back, Tennessee was admitted in 1791, so there's, there's three states admitted and that is uh, Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So the biggest dilemma here, given that the federal government is stationed in Philadelphia, you've got the forks of the Ohio situation that is making matters really, really worse in western PA. 
the, fa the, the failure, I mean, it's one thing to, to have the struggle in being able to collect the tax, but the failure to put down defiant acts of hostility towards tax collectors would make the nation's young republic appear weak. And how true that is, most notably on the executive branch level. You know, George Washington does not want to have to go um, as far as calling out federal troops. However, I think it'd be very fair to say that Washington's not afraid to use federal troops, but he's going to have to make a decision somewhere down the road as to when that time will come and when it has to be justified. Alexander Hamilton remained ever so adamant behind wanting President Washington to call out the federal troops. Hey, Alexander Hamilton was an officer in the American Revolutionary War. He knows what it's like. I mean, he knew what it was like to be fighting in a war where, um, where the use of force was necessary. I mean, it's not so much fighting against uh, the mother country in England, but he just knows what it means to, um, to go to that next level. As for George Washington, he believed at this particular juncture, or current moment, that the use of, of federal governmental troops against American citizens really needed to be seen as a last resort. So I'm beginning to wonder if George Washington still has some other tricks up his sleeve that can be uh, attempted as a means of having to avoid... Um, the worst case uh, last scenario, and that is, you know, having to call out the federal troops. Now, who was uh, Benjamin Wells? Uh, he was a deputy collector for Fayette and Westmoreland counties. He sought to make money um, through such rewards by turning in unregistered stills to providing testimony against all resistors. He had success in recording unregistered stills despite being attacked repeatedly. He witnessed a house in Uniontown where he set up uh, a tax office only for this uh, house to get badly damaged to having his own personal home be attacked by gangs. Gosh, it seems like no matter how hard um, these deputy collectors or just tax collector tax collectors it no matter what they try to do to be one step ahead of the gangs and the in what do you call it in in the um rebels of sorts because it seems like a good number of these men along the frontier are are in a constant state of rebellion they just they're just in a constant state of uh fear knowing that this institution above is going to do so many things uh, that would lead to greater disruption of their livelihood. They just don't know how to uh, cope with all of the um, insurmounting tension. General Neville uh, referred to uh, Wells's incidents, given that um, Deputy Collector uh, Wells had uh, been attacked multiple times. Uh, to having property in Uniontown be damaged um, and his own personal home being attacked. General Neville referred to the uh, Wells' incidents as a means for necessary federal military intervention. Benjamin Wells had gone three times to Philadelphia and provided the Justice and Treasury Departments 
with the names of unregistered distillers along with testimony against his assailants. Now, if this is not enough in terms of going three times to Philadelphia and providing this essential information, then I don't know what truly does constitute um, information that could be uh, considered um, any more greater essential than what has already been uh, provided uh, just a moment ago. Now, what's important about January uh, 17th, or rather, what's important about January 1794 in western Pennsylvania? Uh, well, for one, um, multiple men's barns got burnt. But ironically, the men whose barns were burnt were not tax collectors. Okay, if they're not tax collectors, then why are their barns getting burnt? Because these men did the lawful thing by registering their stills. So is it fair to say that there is a sector of society in western Pennsylvania that wants to be, that is choosing to be law-abiding? Yes. I don't know what the percentage is. It's probably a small percentage. But it is fair to say that there is a sector of a society in western Pennsylvania that is trying to set a good example that wants to see uh, progress happen. These people don't have time to go to jail. These people probably don't even have time to pay a $250 fine because for these people, they know that it would take an eternity to come up with the $250 fine. As I've said before, and I'd say it again, it could very well be that a lot of families uh, living in western Pennsylvania could be uh, traditional middling families where their annual income is roughly about 12 pounds a year. Those whom complied with the laws were also considered to be traitors. They were basically uh, deemed to be in the same boat as uh, the tax collectors. Law-abiding peoples had their tools, livestock, crops, crops being stolen, uh, or damaged as a means of retaliation by those whom remain steadfastly defiant against the whiskey tax. Why should those whom are law-abiding be punished when they um, did not do anything wrong? But remember, it could very well be that those whom are not law-abiding cannot stand to see those who are law-abiding not only do the right things, but be, but perhaps be uh, successful to where they know that uh, burning bridges is not the way um, to go, not just short-term, but long-term. Had President Washington reached a point where he began losing faith regarding western territory along forks of the Ohio, including the Northwest Territory? Uh, well, I would have to say yes. For starters, he was constantly in need of money, given property holdings like Mount Vernon, you know, being along the Potomac River, Virginia. Mount Vernon required constant upkeeping, and his land holdings in western Pennsylvania and Ohio were always teetering with uncollected rents. Okay, you know, yes, Washington has this property, but it's not just sitting there for luxurious purposes. There are people um, renting um, his land, and yet Washington has to turn to um, landlords uh, whom will go about uh, collecting uh, the, mo the money 
and with the hopes that the landlords will give him um, the money in a timely manner. Of course, there's no guarantee on how that process uh, can efficiently work, but it's, it's not so much that the money's going to go to Washington himself. The money could go towards, yes, uh, with new upkeeping projects with Mount Vernon, but other sums of money would go towards uh, attaining long-term goals for Washington. What were those long-term goals? You know, Washington envisioned canals linking the west to the east, inland navigation, where the canals would take the place of uh, roads. I mean, not that roads wouldn't... Washington doesn't want roads eliminated altogether, but canals are a faster way of moving not just goods, but mass quantity of goods from point A to point B. And really, in a sense, the canals are seen as a, a sense of national security for Washington because the canals will um, enable uh, people to move uh, to go east uh, to west and perhaps one day bring immigrants coming overseas into America will perhaps be able to uh, start a new life in America, but by doing so through means of uh, getting to their destination through canals. So these uncollected rents along uh, western Pennsylvania frontier, including Ohio, the uncollected rents are delaying uh, Washington's long-term goals of uh, canal and road construction linking west to east. Secondly, uh, no revenue had been flowing in from the West regarding the whiskey tax. Because no flow, because no flow of uh, money had been coming in from the West, it is fair to say that the federal government's job in daily operations is becoming harder to perform. You know, when Washington first started out as president, I mean, performing the most simplest of tasks was daunting because it involved money. And there was no surplus. And even as we are getting into 1794, folks, we're still in the red. But we're doing everything we can to try to get out of the red. But who is um, hindering this delay? People in the West. There could be some in the East, but it's more so to the West. Our own people. Other problems included uh, failed uh, diplomatic and militaristic efforts to conquer a large uh, nation group of Indian tribes around the Great Lakes, uh, especially in 1791, um, General Arthur St. Clair led a failed um, military invasion into what we now know as um, Ohio, uh, along an area that became right on the outskirts of uh, fallen timbers near present-day Toledo, along the Maumee River. Uh, Arthur St. Clair had a force of, uh, oh, I would say roughly about 1,200 men. They went up uh, against just over 1,000 Indians from uh, multiple tribes like uh, Shawnee, Delaware, Potawatomi, uh, Pontiac, just to name a few. Well, sadly, uh, General uh, St. Clair's uh, forces were pretty much annihilated. He pretty much lost close to 1,000 of his men. Um, and it was, and it's still considered to this day the worst uh, loss of any um, size U.S. Army in one battle alone. So, 1791 was not good in terms of a failed uh, diplomatic and militaristic um, approach to um, 
to overtake the uh, large nation group of Indian tribes occupying uh, the Great Lakes, most notably uh, Lake Erie, where uh, Toledo, Ohio is. Of course, this is where Washington would say, went on to say, you know, we need a, a standing army. You know, yes, we may not, some of you may not like standing armies, but we do need them because we never know when we may have to go into, um, into war. So if that's bad enough, um, Britain is still, in, is still um, making its presence in American, uh, on American soil. I thought Britain was supposed to leave after the 1783 Treaty of Paris. It turns out Britain has refused to do that. They have refused to abandon western forts given that um, given Britain um, was already engaged in a military buildup at uh, present-day Detroit, Michigan, and elsewhere along Lake Erie. Detroit is uh, along Lake Erie, just like Toledo is, uh, so is Cleveland, Ohio. Then you have Spain, who's in talks uh, via territory negotiations with the Creeks and uh, Cherokee Indian nations whom reign supreme in the southeastern United States and what we know is uh, present-day Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Georgia. The Cherokees at one time were in the Carolinas as well, and even as far uh, west in Virginia as southwest Virginia. Britain and Spain are vying not just of uh, Western land, but alliances with Indians whom would defend the frontier lands from further encroachment by American settlers. Things are simply just not looking good. Resistance and paying tax was one thing amongst the frontier's people, but failure to collect tax resulted in decline of creditors' confidence behind the United States' long-term financial stability. How true that is. Alexander Hamilton had to reinvent the current uh, matter by proposing new federal taxes. Taxes on snuff, uh, smokeless tobacco, that is, sugar, carriages, stamp taxes, new import duties on indirect taxes. And how we've made it to, to this point today um, is amazing, but I, if Alexander Hamilton were alive, including some of our other forefathers, I think they would be shocked to find out that America is facing a trillion, is facing a $31 trillion deficit. I mean, to be in debt, say, five or seven million dollars in 1789, that was a lot of money then, but to be in debt, $31 trillion, I think our forefathers would be uh, all beside themselves. Who's, um, Who's uh, William Rawl? He was a U.S. attorney for Pennsylvania. He had built up a file report on the Mingo Creek Association through reports from a spy along the forks of the Ohio. Mr. Rawl supported sending a federal marshal from Pennsylvania to serve notices for all violators whom failed to register stills, including payment of whiskey tax. Let's see where this goes. Now, despite the federal marshal having the power to summon the notices, defiance still reigned supreme amongst the rebel bandits, whom successfully shut down all tax offices where distillers were to register. General Neville's deputies are simply just not safe. No matter where they go in western Pennsylvania, they are being uh, turned away 
via uh, means of extreme violence, and some of them have endured their wrath of tarring and feathering. Was David Lennox the U.S. Marshal for Pennsylvania? Yes, he had the illustrious assignment or task in issuing notices to all delinquent distillers along the western Pennsylvania frontier. Marshal Lennox met with Hugh Henry uh, Brackenridge. Uh, Mr. Brackenridge advised Marshal Lennox that people's anger had centered around General Neville, given he was the head surveyor whom oversaw uh, the deputy's uh, tasks, which included collecting whiskey tax. Mr. Brackenridge wanted General Neville confined to his home, but General Neville and Marshal Lennox left Bower Hill, Neville's estate, to visit the farms of those needing to either register their stills or pay the whiskey tax. July 14, 1794, Marshal Lennox and General Neville arrived to the farm of a Mr. William Miller during the midst of harvest time. In harvest time, you could see plenty of people, whether it's family members or just hired help um, in uh, harvesting um, the, the crops. It was a big deal. So it's one thing for um, Marshall Lennox and General Neville to arrive at the farm of William Miller in the midst of harvest time, but little did um, Marshall uh, David Lennox and General Neville know that they were being watched by a handful of militiamen from a nearby distance. I think it's pretty fair to say that when you see um, officers on horseback, that will catch the attention of, of not just a few people, but many. And when a few people spot officers riding on horseback right away, they know it's a sign of trouble, but they also know to alert other uh, towns members as quickly as possible, which therefore results in a, a great assemblage of uh, militiamen. Marshal Lennox went about reading out a notice to Mr. Miller. It just so happens that uh, Mr. Miller was a cousin to General Neville's brother-in-law, uh, Major Abraham Kirkpatrick. Mr. Miller had not registered his, um, dis his uh, distillery still, which meant a $250 fine. Mr. Miller was in a state of complete shock. He went as far as cursing Marshal Lennox. Lennox fired back with a stern lecture. In the, in the midst of shouting, militiamen rushed out from the forests and began firing shots. Shortly after, Lennox and Neville rode off for Bower Hill, uh, being Neville's estate. This is where things are going to get even more tense here, folks. So pay careful attention. The Mingo Creek Association met and agreed to have Marshal Lennox arrested. John Holcroft became the lead commander whom led the militia group up to Bower Hill, but yet at the same time he also dispatched a separate group towards Pittsburgh with the intent on locating Marshal Lennox. As for Bower Hill, General Neville went above and beyond with the help of uh, servants to barricade and fortify his home against outside invasion threats. You know, it never hurts to be one step ahead. You might be safe, but just the, the thought of fortifying your home will not, will not only just make you one step 
safe, but it probably has the means of making you five steps safe. Well, Commander Holcroft's militia units made their way to Bower Hill. And Commander Holcroft instructed his men to fire at Bower Hill's fortified defenses, which they did for 25 minutes. Now, uh, General Neville and his uh, servants fired back as well. But for 25 minutes, uh, Commander Holcroft's militia units were, were not able to inflict uh, serious damages. They, they did have some casualties, though. They had less than 10, but less than 10 um, caused uh, Commodore, uh, caused Commander Holcroft to issue a, a retreat where his men fell back to Couch's Fort, being an abandoned fortification post from the French and Indian War. Couch's Fort, folks, is only uh, four miles from Bower Hill. So it leads me to wonder if they're going to attack Bower Hill, but again, but doing so from a different um, from a different uh, direction, and perhaps it could be from a direction where Bower Hill may not be um, as fully 100% fortified as it as it was um, per the direction where um, Commander Holcroft's uh, militia had been firing relentlessly from. By July 17th of 1794, nearly 600 militiamen assembled at Couch's Fort, where the Mingo Creek Association voted unanimously in bringing forceful action against Bower Hill, General Neville's estate. However, two demands were issued. Marshal Lennox must turn over remaining warrants, notices. General Neville was to resign as tax inspector. If both demands were met, there would be no um, mass-scale violence. A force of 600 rebel fighters arrived along General Neville's property after 5 o'clock on July the 17th. Unarmed men went about um, holding the horses from the rear. Armed men went about conducting formal gathering in front of Neville House. An exchange of gunfire took place between militia rebel fighters and Neville's family, including household servants. Although firing stopped briefly, it was not enough for the rebels to pay careful attention to a white truce flag waving from a window. You know, the rebels are so preoccupied in their mission, and that is to rid the tax collectors. They're, they're so focused on their agenda that they didn't see what was in front of them, this white truce flag. Perhaps if they had paid more careful attention to the truce flag, maybe there could have been another um, attempt at seeking um, a resolution. Well, it turns out, sadly, that a man by the name of James McFarlane, a, a dear friend of the Neville family, had been shot by rebels and he sadly died on the grounds of Bower Hill. General Neville's uh, slaves shot at rebels from their positions, despite rebels burning every outbuilding they could get their hands on. And they did that, folks. The fires spread to Bower Hill, where the barns, fences, grain, and crops all went up in flames. Sadly, only two structures were left standing at Bower Hill, 
the slave quarters in a smokehouse. The slaves themselves pleaded with the rebels not to burn their quarters. I'm not sure why the rebels... Um, I'm not sure, you know, the rebels were so hell-bent on having everything their way. And yet, somehow, these two structures are the only ones surviving. I don't know what to think of it. But yet, yet they must have established some form of a compassion. But yet, they didn't have any um, respect for authority, being that of the government. It's a double-edged sword. We see these things even in today's modern world. Fortunately, though, for General and Mrs. Neville, they were at, at the home of their daughter and son-in-law. But in the aftermath of the destruction of Bower Hill, General Neville, prior to the uh, destruction and burning of uh, Bower Hill, General Neville had warned President Washington and his administration for some time that law along the forks of the Ohio needed essential assistance needed essential assistance in the form of armed federal government troops well I think it's going to come to a point now, folks, where the only viable option that George Washington and his administration are going to be able to have at their disposal in terms of resolving this conflict is going to be having to turn to armed federal government troops. You know, I can't fault Washington for not having tried with other, you know, strategies, but there does come a point in time where you have to, um, where you really have to realize, okay, Sending individual men in is not worth risking anymore because if they've already had their lives threatened with, if they've been tarred and feathered, and now we've seen a, um, a high-level uh, government officer have his home be utterly destroyed by those whom don't want to pay the whiskey tax, yeah, it's time to have to take matters into our own hands, but in a lawful manner by um, sending out um, federal armed troops to put down what is basically um, a soon-to-be insurrection that if it's not quelled now will become one that is so bad to where even federal troops' lives are at stake. And the government, I mean, think about this. Philadelphia is in the easternmost end of uh, Pennsylvania, bordering New Jersey and Delaware. The Forks of the Ohio, uh, bordering um, present-day Ohio and West Virginia. So we've got one extreme against the other. But what it's going to come down to in the end is resolution. Yes, sending troops may not always be the proper means of resolution, but if it's the only thing left to resolve a conflict that has no end in sight, then that's what has to be taken. That's, that's the road that has to be taken. Well, thank you for your time, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, learn about um, a, a chapter uh, called Talking. What does that mean? Well, of course, <laughs> I'm talking to you all right now. I've been talking to you all throughout this entire podcast segment, like I do with all the others. But talking here um, in this chapter is, uh, will pertain to uh, Washington and his administration and the decisions that are made 
give going forward because um, it's one thing to talk. It's also going to come down to um, how those talks go through in terms of the necessary action needed to put down this out of control um, behavior and violence along the forks of the Ohio. Thank you for your time as always, and I hope all of you um, have a good rest of your week. I will try to be back on the air um, within a couple of days, but if not, I will try to get back on the air as soon as possible. But thank you again, as always, for being such faithful listeners. Take care for now and stay safe.